Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. Honestly, a little bit stunned that I get to announce that that was Peter Coombe. I have to admit, uh, I've been listening to Peter's music since I was a kid. Um, he's been a constant in my life uh, by virtue of my older sister, uh, my younger brother, my all of my cousins. Um, he revolutionised kids' music in Australia. Uh, he produced the first ever kids music video and in my opinion would have to be one of the kings of silly certainly taught me a thing or two growing up about irreverence and we're going to talk about all that and his amazing career and stick around at the end my friends 
because I'm going to play one more of his tunes, and this one you might want to sing along to. I dedicate this interview and this episode to my sister, to Claire. And before we swing into the interview, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cunpodcast, on the World Wide Web's at www.comingupnext.com.au, Twitter and Instagram at cunpodcast. Jump on iTunes, hit that magic subscribe button, leave a review, and I'll keep bringing you amazing and some nostalgic guests. Keep your eyes peeled for some of Peter's big kids gigs around Melbourne and around Australia. Just head to petercoom.com.au for more info. And friends out there, if you are in Melbourne this coming Friday, the 3rd of June, come down to Thousand Pound Bend in the city to catch me doing some live podcasting as part of a co-ground fundraiser. If you come at about 7 o'clock, I'll be doing a live recording of Coming Up Next with Samuel Johnson. That's this coming Friday, the 3rd of June at Thousand Pound Bend in Melbourne City. And without further ado... I bring you my ramble with Peter Coombe. Oh. One, two, three, one, two, three. How close do you want me? I reckon it's Closer? Right there? Yeah. Oh. Is that, are you comfortable? That's good. I'm, I'm very comfortable indeed. <laughs> I saw your show in Thornbury last year, and I was really struck. I'm, I'm quite taken by the fact that your music has really transcended kind of time and space in a way. I, I, I had a friend come with me who's probably about 10 years older than me. I'm your demographic, you mm. know. I grew up listening you're, to you're your music. 30 or 29. 31, 31 yeah. Yeah, 30, yeah, yes, yes. yeah, and yeah. Nick's 28. Yes. So, He's know. also in the demographic. Yeah, yeah. Just. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a friend who came with me who was 10 years older and... He's, uh, he he kind of sits outside of that demographic and he relayed to me actually when I said I was coming to do this interview today that he really enjoyed the show and that he didn't he, he found a connection to the music even as a 40-year-old man. Mm. He really quite relished the show that you put mm. on. Mm. Um, and I think that's a real testament to the way that you've approached music mm. um, from the kind of beginnings. And you even released an album last year or the year before uh, uh, this the Thornby show would have been the North North Coast Social Club is that, is that the one sorry uh, in North Melbourne yeah probably probably North Coast I, either was it the Fringe mate, was the Fringe show yeah it was the Fringe show fringe last show, year well, last year yeah yeah well I think that um, there's a lot, lot of misconceptions about children's music I, I always think that children's music if it's any good at all mm. does tend to transcend age ranges yeah and in in a kind of a way I mean it, 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 there's a, doesn't really matter whether you're 40 or, or 6 um, I think children music, which is any good, mm. uh, it's timeless, and you can actually it has an adult friendliness about it. I mean, you don't get that perhaps thing, things like say "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" or "Humpty Dumpty Sat on a Wall," <laughs> yeah. although they're very cute songs. I think they're, they're quite lovely songs. Yeah, but um, I think you can always you can stretch children. Um, children are often often underestimated, and I always try and stretch them in both musically, intellectually, mm. emotionally, all those things. Give them variety because I think that. That's just showing respect for them, mm. and uh, I get very touched when um, um, when like pe- people come to my evening shows, which is one of the ones you're talking about, I presume. Yeah, yeah. I did one last night, at the corner actually, which oh, is wow. my, my very favourite Melbourne music venue. Yeah, yeah. And it was just amazing, you know, 300 young people there singing newspaper mama and singing <laughs> you know, spaghetti bolognese. And, and when you say young people, you don't mean like I mean five year old. I mean twenty nine year olds, <laughs> <laughs> like you and you. Yeah. <laughs> 
they're, they're very they're really quite like they're really quite lovely so um yeah and i think it's um uh what happens with these shows is they come along and they i think if they haven't been to one before they're not quite sure what to expect because mm. they've heard about them and they come along and what they find is they remember everything yeah and i've kind of figured out the reason why people your age remember everything is because when you love something when you're five you don't just play that CD, or that would have been a cassette probably then. Yeah. <laughs> don't just play it three or four times and put it away. You hear it, you play it a hundred times, mm. play it every night, in every day when you can. And so the songs are sort of drilled into your brain. Mm. So when you come to sing them 20 years down the track, you, you're surprised you actually know them all, mm. which is rather nice. It is. Uh, and it must be really touching from the point of view of someone who I guess you kind of went away for a little while and then you come back and you feel like there's still such a solid and strong connection mm. to these young minds that you were able to uh, influence positively as young people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope you have a positive influence. I mean, I always think children ought to be positive. It's not that you can't have little messages, but I don't, I don't deliberately go out to create messages. I think messages tend to always be a bit heavy-handed, a bit moralistic. Mm. But you hope your values tend to come through the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, the positive, positive stuff that I sing about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. But how important do you think it is, I guess, in a more kind of bigger picture sense as a, an artist to be really considered and not sort of play into not buy into gimmicks i kind of i, I saw mm. in an interview that you'd done where you're compared to some of the other children's performers mm. who may have had uh a, a more global kind of success mm. um probably talking a group this, this first name starts with a w i suspect yeah yeah and rhymes with jiggle that's right yes uh or giggle or giggle <laughs> <laughs> um but you know they're really kind of based in a kind of gimmickry mm. uh, which evolves and, and changes but your music is much more it's got a lot more depth to it and you kind of redefined the child uh, ch- children's music genre in australia mm. oh thank you yeah well I, I, well when i first started doing it there, there was really no one when i say no one no one that anyone knew about mm. who was writing new songs for children this is going right back to about 1982 a long time ago mm. Uh, the only person doing children's music who had a national profile was Patsy Bisco, mm. who was made famous by Glenn Nicholas's famous take of Pate Biscuit. <laughs> and, uh, and Patsy's a lovely lady. I mean, she, I mean, she, she actually quite liked all that. Mm. But there was no one doing original songs for children. And so I started doing it because I, I think it came out of my experience in London. I did this television series in London for three years. And because it was a children's series, mm. um, I wrote the occasional song for the program. That was Music Time? Music Time, that's right, yep. yeah. And so I was getting onto that sort of wavelength, and I, I, I began to realise that children music suited me as a person because I have a kind of a, a sun, I suppose people say I have a sunny disposition, which I do. I'm a fairly happy sort of guy, yeah. but I have a serious side to me as well. Mm. And with children, you can be both. You don't, you don't have to be just up tempo, dance orientated, you know, catchy chorus all the time. And that, mm. kids love all that stuff. You can be gentle, you can be soft, you can be subtle. And children like that as well. Mm. And I know that because I get quite a few emails from children or their mothers saying, you know, my favourite songs are Wash Your Face and Orange Juice, Juicy Juicy Green Grass, Toffee Apple and Lullaby for Tom. Yeah. Now, Lullaby for Tom is a, the last track on Toffee Apple. And it's a song I wrote for my son. And it's a very gentle little thing. It's quite subtle, quite mm. a, not complex, but subtle. 
And it's amazing how many young children like that sort of thing as well. Mm. And that's one of the misconceptions often that children only like this, you know, fast stuff. And they yeah, love yeah, it, yeah. but they don't, they, they, they're, they're a bit broader than that. They're mm. bit, there's a bit more to a child than that. Yeah, I think one thing that you certainly do with your music is treat children like human beings as yeah. opposed to yeah. uh, a kind of novelty sideshow. Yes, they're not, you know, that, that's a good way of putting it. They're not, they're not a novelty show, they're, they're real human beings yeah. who are intelligent, um, you said both musically, intellectually, emotionally. And I think if, if you don't treat them that way, it's showing them great disrespect. Mm. And I think that then that goes hand in hand with when you write songs, you take time over it. You don't just rush a song out and think, oh, it's only for kid, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I, I just couldn't do that. And you take time with recording it, mixing it, get good musicians, good, you know, do it in a good studio. Mm. And you really, you really put work into it. I mean, most things in life that are worthwhile, if I had to be pontificate a bit, really come from effort. Yeah. And if you respect your audience, well, then you... And I think that's why I think why people love coming to these evening shows because they have really loved the songs. And I, I'm, I feel very honoured about that. Mm. It reinforces the effort I put into my writing over the years. Mm. That's worth it because um, you, you have something you're proud of and, and people just come along and they love to sing. Like last night at the corner... It's staggering to hear 3,000 young people singing every song <laughs> from one from beginning to end. It's just amazing. And I've, I've done these shows about probably, oh, maybe, I've done 90 of them now, all yeah. over Australia. And the reaction is always very, very similar. They just love to sing them. And mm. it's really, it's quite touching. I love mm. it. Uh, in, in doing uh, <coughs> some research last night and putting your name to Google, inevitably videos come up yeah. in the search. And I certainly did enjoy... Uh, revisiting Mr. Clickety Kane and uh, <laughs> right, yes. Spaghetti Bolognese. That's the big one. Mr. Clickety Kane. Oh, yes. What is it about washing your face with orange juice that people just love? I, it's probably, if if there is such a thing as a, a classic children's song, that probably is it. Mm. In the sense that it's got a very catchy chorus. It's really quite silly. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's an echo song, but it's an accumulative echo song. Mm. You know, it gets longer and longer and longer. And the last, of course, the last verse is the silliest of all. You know? <laughs> belly flop on a pizza. Belly flop on a pizza. Now that's expanded Yuck. into this big, into this whole lot of business now. When I do it in the show, mm. so in a way, it sort of it sort of ticks all the boxes of what makes a good children's song. Mm. And, uh, and that, it's a kind of a bit of a sleeper that one because it was never never the title of an album. It just sat as track, n- track number three on the original Spaghetti Bolognese album. <laughs> and just gradually over the years, I came to realise that children knew it. And now, like 32 years down the track, every child knows it. I can, I can go into a school and I know that if I sing that song, that they will simply sing it back at me. Mm. And there are no exceptions, which is quite, quite extraordinary. That is extraordinary. So, that, that, that's a kind of a, so it's lovely, but it means I have to sing the song in every show. Yeah. I cannot do a children's <laughs> show and not do Mr. Clickety Kane, or it's often called Wash Your Face and Orange Juice these days. Mm. If, you, if I don't, people complain. So I just do it <laughs> and enjoy it. <laughs> Is, is there something in that? I mean, I've had a, a few musicians on here and there's something, you know, it's funny, talk, uh, and I've spoken to a few stand-up comedians as well, and there's this contrasting experience that's quite palpable between comedians and musicians where when people go to a comedian's show, they don't want to hear the stuff they've already heard. They don't want to hear what's familiar. They want to be shocked and they want to hear yeah. something funny and fresh. That's right. Whereas when they go to... Uh, a musician show yep. it's exactly the opposite they want to, they want to hear the familiar they want right. to be able to sing along is yep. that something that is kind of a challenge to grapple with as a as a musician um 
it's only a challenge in the sense that there's a part of you would love to do a, an entire show of, of songs I, I never sing live. That'd be wonderful if I could just get up and do say instead of say do, you know like last night do twenty one songs that they all know well, mm. do twenty one songs that I choose that they don't know or don't know anywhere near as well, and um, uh, and, but the, and, and and sing them that that'd be that'd be fabulous. Mm. But that would be to me being really quite disrespectful or selfish to your audience because mm. they came along they know what they want to hear they want to hear all the songs from Toffee Apple Spaghetti Bolognese Newspaper Mama and Chopstick they're the four mm. big albums Christmas Time is a, is a Christmas album I have it's also a big album they want, they want to hear songs on that one so basically what you end up doing is you mix and match a little bit I, I, I throw in a couple of lesser known ones last night there's a song I've got called I Just Love Peanut Butter yeah. which most of them wouldn't have known, but it's very up-tempo. And if I do it early in the set, it works really well. Mm. But towards the end of the set, you really got to do the kind of the, the ones they know may know really well. Mm. But when I do a school show, that's when I can in- introduce kids to some new songs. So especially near the end of the, sh- near the beginning of the show. Now I've, got, I've got a new one called Quirky Berserky, the Turkey from Turkey. And it's a song about this <laughs> turkey that travels the world and meets another turkey, and it's a kind of you know, really tongue in your cheek. Yeah. And in the song, I I, ha- I list off forty six country names, so it was a nightmare to learn. <laughs> but it's my fault. I wrote it. I, d- I didn't have to write that. Yeah. And it was quite a challenge. So, um, but that's so in, in the in the children's show that I do at schools, my stripped down solo show, mm. I can then introduce new stuff, but still do some of the old stuff near the end because again they expect it. And I think, it's re- I think it's reasonable to expect it. But mm. you're right, it's a good point you're saying. With comedians, you, you come along, you want to hear a whole lot of new material. You don't want to hear the same jokes. Mm. You just want to hear new stuff. Yeah. So stand-up comics have to constantly do different shows. Be evolving, but yeah. Children love the familiar. And I mean, adults are the same. I mean, if I go hear someone like Paul Simon, there's certain songs I really hope he's going to sing because mm. I certainly love, I love, I love Dearly. But then again, again someone, like, someone like him, he's got an enormous repertoire. Well, like I have too, I suppose. And um, you'll get a mix of some of the favourites. He has the same thing. You'll always, you'll always hear Sound of Silence. Yeah. You're going to hear Bridge Over Troubled Water. Mm. And the others you just don't know. Mm. Uh, one thing that did strike me about the, the gig in North Melbourne that I went to last year, you did a cover of Here Comes the Sun, I think it was. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it was extraordinary. I think it was the highlight of the evening for me. Yeah. I was like, I, oh, I would love to hear more yeah. of, of you playing that because you obviously really connected with the tune yeah and it really kind of you know it washed through me as you were yeah as you were playing oh, it good yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a gorgeous song to sing oh play. yeah it's a, it's a guitarist dream that song it just sits under the finger so beautifully mm. it's also it 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 really um sort of points up an interesting thing about contemporary music i, I think there's been a a definite um, demise in the quality of melody writing over the past say 25 years writing good Uncliched melodies is really difficult. Mm. It's very, very difficult. I suspect that's that's partly why there's been less of them in, over, over the last twenty or thirty years. And probably almost post Beatles, there hasn't been a lot of really strong melodic writers. I mean, a lot of people who write great lyrics, mm. but not a lot of strong melodic writers. And in the end, of course, there are only twelve notes in the scale. So rearranging those twelve notes in constantly different ways over the years so, sort of gets harder and harder, <laughs> really. But melody writing is a an incredible skill, and I work very hard about to try and produce melodies that are just a little bit different, mm. have little twists in them that haven't been done before. But it's hard; you've really got to work at it. It doesn't. Mm. You occasionally get a melody that drops out of the sky from nowhere. That's and when you do, you're just eternally grateful. And for me, that one was "Newspaper Mama." I wrote that in about an hour and a quarter, which is very fast oh, wow. for me. Yeah, it just, yeah. just came out of nowhere. You don't know why; it just happened. 
So, um, but most most songwriting is really is really a lot of hard work. Mm. Not to kind of go into your process for writing newspaper, Mama, but what do you kind of what was I guess influencing you as you were kind of sprawling it out on the page as it was kind of coming through you? Do you know I can't really remember that actual process because it's that that song I wrote that in 1988. Wow. I just I, I can remember where I was. I was in the family room in my house, just sitting at the table, mm. and I can just simply remember. Maybe I just re- just read the newspaper. It just somehow came out of nowhere. It's just the mystery of songwriting. When someone mm. says, "How do you write a song?" you can you can tell someone up to a certain point, but there's a certain point where you, where you just can't go beyond it. You don't you don't even know yourself. Mm. And I'm, I'm I'm writing a song now, and uh, I just finished writing it before I left left Adelaide to come to Melbourne. I don't know how I got that last bit. Mm. You, you experiment, something, something kind of falls into place, which you really can't describe. And Newspaper Mum was a classic example of that, where it, just, it all fell into place very quickly. Mm. This song I just finished on the, the other day, that, that, that's taken me hours, but it's finally fallen into place. It's a bit like, um, a bit like um, I always think of a, a mountain stream coming down from the top, top of a mountain like, like a river. There's a sort, of a sort of a natural path that stream tends to take yeah, and songwriting's a bit like that. You can't, you can break the rules. You can make the stream go in another way, but you've got you've got to be quite clever to do that. Mm. Because if you break the rules, you've got to, you've got to break them in a way that just works. And that that's in a way where perhaps the, the skill of the songwriter comes into play. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know how you actually got into music because <coughs> you were a self-taught mm. guitarist, weren't you? Yeah. Uh, in what the seventies, uh, late seventies? Yeah, I started. Well, I started playing guitar in the late sixties. Okay, and uh, I was influenced by people like Paul Simon, a group called Peter Paul and Mary, who mm. were huge in the sixties. Really, they were like Radiohead now. Wow, know, or like Coldplay. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I, I li- listened to them. I was in- influenced by them. But yeah, largely self-taught. I had had quite a few um, piano lessons as a young child. About four years of classical piano, which is, was always useful it's mm. useful to be musically literate you don't have to be musically literate i mean people like paul mccartney i don't i don't think paul mccartney can read a note as far as i know yeah, wow. and it, it, it hasn't seemed to have held him back very much <laughs> no <laughs> he's had a fairly fruitful fairly, career. fairly fruitful career you yeah. say yes so um yeah but but, but I, I have had some training as a piano player mm. but guitar, guitar was very much list, listening listening to what other people are doing and adapting it to your own style mm. but then because in the end music is about about the ears not about the eyes what were you doing at the time? Were you at university or was this still in school? Or mm. um, what, what were, were you studying something else and this just you kind of just took this tangent on life? Yeah, I, I, took, I, I, was, I started at Teachers College and I, I think I picked up the guitar that, that year. I only started playing guitar when I was about 17. I was, I was quite a late beginner. Mm. But once you, get, once you get something and you love it, you just, you just practice and pra- you, just can't, you can't put it down. Yeah. And in a way, that's how you become a, a good player. You just you just love it so much. You, every spare minute, you simply pick it up and play it. And that's it's a lovely feeling that where you can't wait to get to your guitar and try stuff, mm. listen to another track and try and copy what the guy's doing on it. And because uh, you, you you learn so much by listening to other people who are good at what they do. But but then of course then then the guitar styles evolve, and what you do is maybe not exactly like that person doing it. It's it's, it's similar but different. Mm. And that's what where all these lovely styles are around. Mm. But, that, but it's listening, basically. Yeah. And you were you were a primary school teacher, mm. is that right? Yep. So you were already yep. working with kids at that point yep. in time. Yep. Wow. Yep. What was that kind of experience like? Oh, great. I, I always liked teaching. Um, mm. 
I, ne- I never, I never left teaching to do what I'm doing now because I didn't like teaching. Teaching was exhausting. That was the only negative. <laughs> it, was, it was exhausting. Yeah. As as a music teacher, there's a tendency to, to sort of um, every lesson tends to be a half performance. Mm. You sort of can't help yourself if you're a performer. But that that's exhausting. It's like it's like doing sort of seven half concerts a day every day. Wow! So it's wearing. Yeah, yeah. But um, it uh, it was lucky that in nineteen eighty two, I happened to be on television. I had this BBC television program which I made in London, which the ABC bought here. Mm. I was also making some ABC radio programs. So my thinking was, well, if I'm ever going to do this full time, become a full time children's singer songwriter, now is the time to do it. Yeah, yeah. At least I'm known. And I can then start off by doing shows in schools, and and I can people ask me because they know me. Now, having said that, as a rule of thumb with schools, it's all very well to be well known, but once you get in front of those two hundred and fifty kids, if you can't produce it, if you can't produce the goods, mm. forget it. You're not going to get asked back. And that's that, that's the great thing about children; they're quite unforgiving in that sense. <laughs> yeah. We adults are very polite. We'll mm. put up with something a bit boring for a long time. Children won't. You've got about two minutes. Mm. And uh, <laughs> but that, that's great because it, it forces you to produce something at, uh, in a concert that simply works. Mm. So, um, so that, you know, I got asked in the first place. This is 80, 83 when I first started doing this because people knew me. Mm. But once I got there, I had to very quickly develop a show that worked. And uh, luckily I did. Luckily you did. <laughs> you, you certainly did. What was the uh, impetus to go and live in London? Oh, I think, well, I can put it, I can remember clearly a very dear friend of mine, a guy called Graham McCarthy, who was a very successful folk singer in London with his wife, Lynn, in the 60s, he, mm. um, I was living in Sydney at the time, and, and he sort of said to me more or less, look, why, why are you wasting your time here? He didn't say those words. Why are you here? Just go to London. Mm. Just go there. Just, just, just make the leap and go there. And I had a young family of two young children then. And he said, and Graham said, well, look, even if you don't make it, you'll never, you'll never regret doing it. Mm. Well, ne- never was a truer word said. So I went to London. I got this TV series called Music Time. I fell head over heels in love with the UK. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hopeless Anglophile. <laughs> I go there whenever I can. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's where it all started, really. My, my, my only regret about the UK is I've never been able to do anything since there. Yeah. Unfortunately, in my field, the, the Brits are amazingly conservative, incredibly right. conservative. They just won't try new stuff. Mm. And um, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter how successful we are here. I mean, I've sold over a million, a million albums here. But you get the feeling I could have sold a hundred million. It still wouldn't matter. Mm. And you, th- you feel like saying, "Well, now hang on, we have a reasonably similar culture. Yeah. We're not as if it's like it's you know it's like Australia and it's trying to make it in Afghanistan or something. <laughs> we share a similar <laughs> a sense of humour. Mm. We're an, an ex-colony of you, of you guys. All these things, but somehow there's a there's a strong conservative streak in the UK that mm. they just reluctant to try new stuff. They don't quite get how one would fix their fence with sticky tape. They don't know. They don't. They don't actually say that. But they kind of glaze over. Right. When you talk about doing, what do you do? Oh, I, write, I write songs for children and record them. There's a kind of feeling of, oh, really? It's almost like you're saying, oh, what, what's that? Well, it's actually not difficult. It's, it's called writing new songs for children. Yeah. You know, some people write books. I write songs. You know, it's not hard to understand. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. But you get this strange sort of um, glazed overness which comes over p- people in Britain in the industry. And the, of course, there's a thing, like, like you say, well, you're not on television, are you? No, mm. no well, I can't make on television. I'm not known. So well, if, if you put me on television, I'll become known, and then but, you know, sort of chicken the egg sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that 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 doesn't matter in a way. I mean, I, because I love I love the UK, I'd, I'd love the excuse to go there regularly and perform. Mm. But um, I'm still ho- hoping that something might happen in the UK. But uh, 
I'm not holding my breath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to be here, really. Yeah, and it's great that you were able to have that success with, with Music Time to then be able to come back here mm. and actually start forging a um, fully-fledged music career. Mm. And you started off, you, your first album was actually not a children's album, it was a folk album, wasn't mm. it? That's right, yeah. Um, sort of folky pop, really. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So what was it that you kind of went, well, I made that album, mm, this time I'm going to try and make a children's album. Well, the first album was called Vagabond, and I, I must say, there's a few tracks in that album that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't release anymore because I, I don't really like them anymore. Right. But uh, it was a bit, a bit commercial, really, mm. for me. Um, but that, that was made. That, that was in my wanting to be the, the world's next Paul Simon era of my life. Because mm. I went to London. That was the idea. Wanted to be the world's next, well, you know, the next Paul Simon, mm. <laughs> which is sort of in, silly in a way because <laughs> there is only one Paul Simon. Yeah. Um, and anyway, there's a million other pe- million other people who want to be the world's next Paul Simon. Anyway, I. I I didn't actually make it in that sense. Mm. But while I was there, I was sending back songs to the ABC, particularly in Sydney, and they were using them. Places like Play School were using my songs. And I realised then that I I think I had a certain ability to write, to relate to children and write songs to children. It appealed to my personality, my silly part of me and my Mm. sensible part of me. So when I came back, there was a guy who in Adelaide offered to finance a children's album. I I had enough songs for my first children's album. And he, I thought, okay, well, I'll do this. And I was going to just record with him in Adelaide. Mm. He suddenly pulled out. I thought, oh, okay, that's not going to happen. And I thought, hang on, I've got these songs anyway. I'll just go across to Sydney and I'll, and I'll record them in the same studio as I recorded Vagabond. Mm. And it was, um, it was still quite a cheap little album called Songs of Little Kids. But it kind of, it kind of in, a hob, in a hobby industry sort of way, it kind of took off right from the beginning. And I, I sensed that because the moment I did it and, and ran off, just ran off, you know, cassettes on my own tape recorder you know mm. rural, a real homegrown little product people kept asking me for it i get on i get constant requests say can i have one too can i buy one too and that was this went on for quite a few weeks and i've i got this sense this there's something very fertile here this this is going to going to ha- something's going to happen mm. and of course it was obvious no one was doing it i mean it was something new no certainly no one was writing new songs to children and you can say, well, why not? I don't, I don't know why they weren't but they but they weren't and so that gradually expanded to them Spaghetti Bolognese and then Toffee Apple and the ABC took on Toffee Apple, made a video clip and that went sort of viral in a, in a, in a modern sense. Mm. It was all over over ABC television screens and I became just well known through that. So that's how, that's how it all started. You, and Toffee Apple was like the first ever kids music video made in Australia, yeah, wasn't that's it? Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah that, was, that was a lucky lucky break. I, there happened to be a lady at the ABC called Diana Manson who um, you know, used to manage Robin Archer who's a quite, you know, quite a famous um, Australian singer producer um anyway i went to dine and she when took me on an artist and i said look i've got this song called toffee but wouldn't it be great thinking oh, this will this is pie in the sky there but wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if you could actually turn to a clip put it on tv so people could actually hear the entire song like they came with a pop song it goes on television triple m or whatever triple triple or something like that and um or triple j and then you get a chance to hear the song and decide, do I like it or not? Can I buy the album of it? Can I buy it off iTunes or whatever? Because mm. children's music does not have an outlet. No one plays children's music in terms of a mainstream radio station. So anyway, Di, to my amazement, he said, yes, let's make a video clip of Toffee Apple. So they did. And of course, it got put on ABC television and showed umpteen times, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. And people bought the album in huge numbers. And that mm. set up a tour, of course. 
then the next one, Newspaper Mama, then Chopsticks, the Christmas album, and it sort of just escalated from there. Mm. But all it was kind of happening in a way was what happens in pop music. I mean, people get the chance to hear an entire song and decide, do they like the song or does it drive them crazy? <laughs> in which case, they won't buy it. So in a way, it was just doing what pop music's always done, give mm. the public a chance to hear something before they buy it. Mm. And you also won... Or you, or you kind of invented a category of the ARIA Awards, which you uh, you also won for Toffee Apple, which was Best mm. Children's Album. That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, you're kind of starting to make waves in the early to mid-'80s uh, as a child or children's musician. Mm. Do you remember what that was kind of like in the moment, like what, were you, what you were feeling and the kind of esteem you were building for yourself? Um Oh, I knew, I knew it was building. I knew um, between 83 and 87, uh, I, I knew that, I mean, I was getting loads of work. Then. I, was doing, I was doing 200 shows a year, wow. which is really quite exhausting, yeah. but I was doing 200 shows a year. And the school shows had worked, were working very well. I, I developed the whole school act, mm. and it, um, it, it was working well. But I knew if I was going to do more than just do, do the, all this stuff in Adelaide and South Australia, I, couldn't, I didn't want to see myself doing that for the next 30 years. Mm. I, I thought that there has to be a way of develop, developing this um, I- uh, nationally. Because that's, that's when I took, did the Toffee Apple video clip. I thought someone in the end will see the common sense of this, that mm. if people like it in South Australia that much, surely there are people who like it in New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria and Western Australia. So that's, that's when Toffee Apple came out and it, just, it really just exploded. Yeah, yeah. And all it was was the clip on television being shown before play school, after play school, after Sesame Street, and in the afternoon sometimes, and people got to know the song. And, of course, it was available through the ABC shops. That mm. was a critical part of the link. And, of course, then I became really well-known. And, of course, then I'd set up tours that were all around Australia then, which I did for quite a few years. Mm. Mm. Uh, I saw that you, just as kind of a side note, at um, I think it was the second ARIA Awards that you went to, uh, you got the chance to chat to Sir George Martin. I did backstage. That one must the, have been quite a thrill. Highlights of my life. Yeah, the well, fifth I'm Beatle. Huge Beatle fan. I yeah, mean, yeah. I, I just adored the Beatles. And uh, and what ha- what happened was, um, I was there for an, uh, the Aria one for Newspaper Mama, which is 1989, mm. and it just so happened that George Martin was um, the keynote speaker, being brought out from London to be the keynote speaker, and in the winners' room after. Who was he was there because he'd been a, a speaker, but Kylie Minogue was there as well, and mm. she it, she kind of was the year that she kind of broke. She suddenly became huge. She must have had a big hit, I think, that year. I think locomotion or something. Mm. Anyway, but in the winners' room, what struck me is really odd. There's Kylie. It's very very cute. She's a very sweet, you know, young girl then, mm. and and all the journalists like bees to honey just went to her yeah, yeah. and there's George Martin the guy who did the orchestration for Yesterday yeah. produced Lonely <laughs> Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Haskell Band Abbey Road every Beatle album he's over there by himself having a cup of tea no one else to talk to him there's <laughs> something absurd about this madness I mean Kylie's sweet but this guy's a really big deal if you know anything about rock music he's a big deal you know I mean, produced probably the arguably the most famous album of all time Sergeant yeah. Pepper's Lonely Haskell Band anyway so I, I got the chance to have a, have a long chat with him. Not not silly stuff like his autograph. That, that I, I, we, we chatted about music. Mm. And we, I chatted to him about the last track on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a song called Day in the Life. Mm. It's an amazing track where Paul McCartney sings one bit, John Lennon sings another bit. And there's this amazing orchestral 
ascending scale that happens twice in the song. And it's when you hear it, it's kind of all very ad hoc. If you, if you know the track, when yeah, you, hear yeah. it, you know what I mean. Um, and I asked him this how he did it, and it was fascinating how, how he did it. You simply take these classical musicians and you start from their bottom note, and you say you've got X number of bars to get from there to your top note. And when you hear it, you can you can see it. You can hear it all happening. Mm. So they sort of find their way to their top note. No 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 notes, of course. You got to find your way within a set number of bars. And of course, it gives the whole thing a feeling of tension because most classical musicians, unlike jazz players, they like dots. They don't they don't, they don't want to play without music. Mm. They get very anxious. Like, well, most of them can't anyway. They need dots. So to say to these these classical musicians, the London Symphony, get from that note to that note. Whatever, whenever, whenever, in any way you like, was a challenge, mm. and that was fascinating. That that was very clever. I thought him to do that, but apart from that, he was just a really charming, charming man, lovely man. Mm. And um, I was very sad when he died about about a month ago. I mean, he's about ninety, but really incredibly influential. In, in the, and the Beatles were extraordinarily lucky to have met him. He was mm. a great influence on them, sort of a civilizing influence in a way. And of course, he had all this, this classical background, so that's why he did, you know, orchestrations for them. And uh, well, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a long answer to your question. But it was a great pleasure meeting him. Yeah. Mm. Well, how important is it for you uh, as a musician, and how important do you see it? Maybe even as just any sort of creative or artist to have that really deep knowledge and, and education to be able to be like a George Martin, mm. um, and to be able to. Uh, create in these kind of unique ways? Um, well, I suppose in my field, the children's field, the, the, there are, it is important to have the right sorts of knowledge. Mm. I mean, I think there's things like um, knowledge of children, how, how children tick, how they think, um, what they like, what they don't like. Uh, that that's critical when you're performing to them because mm. you've said you've got these short concentration spans. You've got, you've got to know about that. Um, I think it's important to understand that they need to be respected as an audience, mm. and uh, because there are, there are there's the occasional children's songwriter who doesn't who doesn't respect children, and they just think anything's okay. Mm. And they have, some of them even to say I don't I don't even like children. Now, how you could perform with children not like them beats me. Yeah, that's absurd. It sounds but, like but, an oxymoron. But, but it's, it does sound like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But that's that's just not, not not often. I mean, I just haven't met the the occasional one is is, is sort of. Give that, given that sort of sense, mm. um, but yeah, it's important to have. In the case of George Martin, obviously he had, had classical music background. He was a producer. I've learned to be a producer of my own albums. Mm. Learn how to work in a studio. So you, you need to have that. Um, and I think also you you simply need to have. It comes a point where although songwriting is hard work, there is a thing called talent. Mm. Now you've got to have talent. Yeah. It's not everything. <laughs> But if you haven't got it, you're not going to produce a good song. You're mm. not going to produce a good song. You, you can produce a, a sort of a competent song, but not a great song. But where that comes from, that talent, again, is that's the great mysterious thing. Mm. You know, why people like um, Paul Simon, like um, Joni Mitchell, like um, um, George, you know, George, George um, Harrison, Paul McCartney, John, how they produce stuff, no one ever quite knows. Mm. Um, but you do, yes, you, you do need lots of sort of, Knowledge in, in whatever field you're in. For me, it's just knowledge about music and children, I guess, mm. when it boils down to it. I think something that I'm learning um, as a, I'm a filmmaker, uh, and as a filmmaker, 
you know, you go through your kind of late teens and early 20s as a creative wanting to be original and, and um, wanting to reinvent the wheel. And I'm kind of, I've come to this realization over the last probably 12 or 18 months of my life that it's actually not about reinventing the wheel. It's about, I'm going to put my own hubcap on that wheel, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's already been invented. You know, That's right. Yeah. To try and to strive for that reinvention is essentially a futile act yeah. that's quite a good analogy actually yeah you can't make the wheel but put your, put, put your own hubcap yeah 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 or your own designed hubcap <laughs> yeah exactly uh i i'm and one thing with that i suppose is i believe that we're always kind of or we can only ever create from our own experience and you mentioned lullaby for tom before mm. as mm. something that was obviously very personal to you mm. Um, and a song that you had written for your son. Yeah. Have you found a kind of through line with all of your music, um, as absurd or ridiculous as the songs may appear, that there's always some element of Peter or your life in that music? Yeah, I think yeah, pretty much. I think that's probably that's true. There, there is always an element of your own experience, your own life in in every song you write. Mm. Now, in that particular song, I mean, I've written songs to all my four children, actually. That, that one was my son, but I've written the songs to my three daughters as well, and it's very much of myself and them. But, but any song I write, there's something about my experience or my values that, that come through the song. Mm. And I think that, that's the way it always ought to be, too. I don't think songs, songwriting is something that's just over there and, and it's, it's just totally subjective. Yeah, yeah. It's always an objective <laughs> thing and it's, um, it's an emotional thing. And uh, without that, I think you're probably not going to produce a decent song anyway. Mm. So there's always, there always is bits of you, even if you don't know it, there's bits of you in a song, you, in any song you write. Mm. And I think one of the amazing things about children in particular, which you touched on before, <laughs> is their, uh, their lack of awareness or that innocence that they have mm. that demands authenticity. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, does, it does demand authenticity. Um, and they have a, yeah, it, it is sort of a lack of awareness. Um, they, but they, they know, they kind of know a good song when they hear it. Mm. I suppose when I say a lack of awareness, I mean of social etiquette or niceties or anything oh, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Well, the great thing children don't have naturally is politeness. Yeah. Politeness <laughs> has to be taught. Yeah, but but that but that's as a, as a performer is a good thing. Mm. That you, you've got to learn to say if you've got a group of say five to eight year olds in front of you in a school in a big school hall when you're performing with them, they're not going to be polite. I mean, you've got your first five minutes you can do almost anything, even ten minutes. But once you get beyond ten minutes, you've got to, you've got to change gears mm. because they will simply after a while start flagging. So things like action songs, chorus songs, the faster stuff, the ones they know best, that's when you, you build those into the concert mm. because they won't sit there and be polite like adults will. Mm. I mean, adults will, ha- well, not happily, but they'll sit there and be polite for a whole hour in a concert. They might be bored out of their brains, but they'll still be quite polite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you kind of don't know whether in a way whether they're really enjoying you or not. You probably sense it, mm. but children are obvious. They just sort of, they, they wriggle. They start, mm. they start. They start thinking, "I want to go to the toilet." Stuff like that. Yeah, it's yeah. always a bad sign when you get lots of kids who want to go to the toilet. <laughs> that means they're not engaged. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and something that I something that I talk on this show about a lot is, you know, I, I like to talk, get so, somewhat philosophical at some point, and something that I one of the the last question I ask everyone, which this is the first time I've actually pre uh, meditated this question to someone. The last question I ask people on the show is what makes you silly, um, which, I will, which I will ask you mm. when we get to the end of the interview. 
But a common answer to that from people who have children is my, it's my children that make me silly or the children that are in my life that make yeah. me silly. And as I've kind of been going down this rabbit hole with some of these, some amazing people on this show, I'm starting to really understand. I don't have any children of my own that I'm aware of, but... Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, children are the greatest teachers is what I'm coming to understand. And what they teach adults is about that innocence and is mm. about that almost unconditional love mm. that they kind of approach life with yeah. uh, until, you know, you start to get to 7 to 10 where yeah. you start to notice your, calculating. your mirrors mm. and your face and your way mm. that you fit into, you know, mm. social structures and things mm. like that. My long-winded uh, question that I'm coming, that I'm arriving at is... It's a silly bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll get there eventually, but uh, f- for you as someone who entertains children and mm. who you're kind of immersed in this uh, world of this unconditional energy that's directed towards you. How have you found that um, purely from, a, I guess, an energetic or a philosophical point of view? Uh, inspiring is, is the word. Um, in my case, I, I always had a strong, silly streak when I was, when I was a young child myself. I, I, I love the sense of the ridiculous. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up on people like the Marx Brothers, who I think were just one of the great, great comedy teams of all time. Then I graduated when I was a teenager to... John Cleese to Monty Python to mm. Spike Milligan, the goons, all that stuff. So I've always had a very, very advanced sense of the ridiculous. And I found that in that sense, I was very much like the children I, you know, I, I work with. Mm. But I think the way you keep your silliness is by having children yourself. Mm. And in my case now, having grandchildren. Because you then become reacquainted again with their sense of the ridiculous. Yeah. So, for example, right now, my, my um, five-year-old granddaughter and seven-year-old grandson... Love, love the silly walks thing, you know, the, the John Cleese Ministry yeah, of Silly yeah, Walks. Yeah. They just love it because <laughs> the physical humour is just wonderful. Mm. The six foot six guys are doing this weird walk, so um, you, you you reconnect every time you then you then work with a child. But but I always had that silly element myself anyway, mm. so I was lucky in that sense. And I, in fact, I would go so far. I don't if you're a totally serious person, you probably couldn't do the stuff that I do. No, you couldn't do it because children wouldn't 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 be very interested because mm. they love children love to laugh. That's one of the great reassuring things about the human race that all young children love to laugh. Mm. We adults do too, but sometimes we don't laugh enough. But young kids just love and love the sense of the ridiculous. Mm. They, they, they love like silly voices. <laughs> Even us do that in a song. They cackle. <laughs> or, uh, so uh, some songs I, I go into sort of about 10, 10 different silly voices and they, and they love it mm. so again that, that's just I find that quite inspiring mm. uh, and they sort of reinforce your belief in the human race basically mm. do you remember the first time that you entertained or performed perhaps as a child or um, an, uh, maybe in your early teen years or something and you felt like that that was something that you wanted to pursue as a career um not really. I, I remember as an eight and nine year old singing harmonies to pop songs because pop songs in the in the in the mid to late late fifties were, were very easy to sing to. Mm. They were done in fairly fairly kind of um, major keys with easy chorus lines, and and because I had a sense of harmony, which I didn't realise is unusual. I mean, there were a lot of people who can do natural harmonies, but of course mm. most people can't. It's not something most people can do, and I thought that sort of then oh maybe most people can do this, but of course they can't. So, uh, I, but I didn't. St- 
I didn't do any actual performing as a child. I was actually quite shy as a child, really. Mm. I can remember one performance I did in um, in grade seven when I was must have been about eleven and a half, and I remember being quite nervous. So I wasn't a natural performer as a child, except in my own ha- my own home with my own sister. Mm. I did really silly things with her, <laughs> and I then translated those silly things to my own children. Mm. And I had this thing. I used to do this thing called uh, the biggest hug in the world, and I, what what it, what it involved was taking my one of my children, let's say my oldest daughter, but I did it with all my kids, mm. and I'd say, oh, good night, Janie, see you in the morning, and, and it's just, oh, I'm going to put her to bed, and then I'd pick her up, good night, and I'd hold her up, and, night, Janie, see you in the morning, go out the front door, open the door, go out the outside, night, Janie, see you in the morning, walk down the footpath, <laughs> night, Janie, see you in the morning, see you in the morning, night, have a nice sleep, keep walking down the footpath, night, Janie, see you in the morning, then hang her on a tree, <laughs> just hang on a tree, and sort of leave her there for about, 10 seconds, you know. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was never dangerous with me. And she goes, Ah, Dad, 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 please get me down. I want to go to bed. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> that, that sort of stuff, um, I, I, I've started doing it with my grandchildren too. Yeah, so yeah. you do these things because, because kids love that kind of stuff. Mm. And I'm always, I'm always touched that my own children talk about this little thing now with their friends. Because mm. one of my beliefs as a parent is you've got to have fun with your children. Mm. you really got to have fun. And you've got to do silly things with them because that's what I think if you give children that sense of this, well, they've already got the sense of silliness. You're silly with them. They've become just, just um, better adults. Mm, give them that permission to unleash the silly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Nick and I sitting here grew up together listening to your music. And we have an older sister um, <coughs> who she uh, has, she has an intellectual disability and one thing that uh, has kind of been a through line in her life is repetition uh, of kind of entertainment and things like that. Yep. And so she, there, there were two things that were kind of a constant in our household for our entire life. One was Mary Poppins, two was Peter Coombe. So that kind of, um, you know, in, in, a, in a way, your music has been a kind of soundtrack to our, uh, mm. our childhood and even our early teens. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying here is I'll, uh, thank you for everything that you've, kind of, that you've given our generation of, mm. uh, of children and for allowing us that kind of uh, role model of being silly, mm. um, which seems like a really great way to segue into my final question, <laughs> 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 which is what makes you silly? I'm not sure I even know the answer to that. Before I, before I answer that, though, I, I, just a comment. I, I, I found over the many, many years that children with disabilities, all sorts of disabilities, are very, very attractive to music. Mm. Uh, for example, autistic kids, they love music. Ch- children with intellectual disabilities, likewise. It's mm. something about music just connects. But um, what makes me silly? Do you know, I don't think there's really an answer for that. All I know is I've been silly all my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really serious right now in this interview, but really, yeah, yeah. I do really silly things with my grandchildren. You know, I play these all these silly games with them because I just, I just, I just love doing it. Mm. Um, but where does, why, why are some people silly and some people aren't? I don't really know. I can't, I can't think of an answer that rings true. That would be re- a reasonable thing to say. Oh, I'm mm. silly because of such and such. I just am. Mm. And um, maybe, maybe it's got something to do with your disposition. I, I, I could, I could, I could advance one theory possibly. Mm. I had an idyllic childhood. I feel very, very fortunate to have two parents who love love me very much. I love them, and I had no major traumas growing up. You know, beyond the usual stuff that you know teenagers go through. 
but I, that that maybe maybe that gave me the license to be silly. I was mm. never I was never told not to be silly as a young child, and I could have been. Uh, so that that allowed my natural silliness to kind of flower, if you like. Mm. But I still don't quite know where that comes from. I mean, why do why do you get people something like a Spike Milligan or a John Cleese or a, or a, you know or a, any any contemporary you know performer, uh, mm. a, a, a comedian? I I don't know. Uh, which is not answering your question, but I, it's the <laughs> most honest answer I can produce. I certainly think that a, I think freedom for children to be silly at a young age is an important thing, and maybe maybe that's half an answer that I was allowed to be silly. Mm. I was allowed to hang my sister on cupboards <laughs> when she was ten and do voices, yeah, and, and do silly voices and just do really ridiculous things yeah. and say silly things and make up the stupid words. I mean, I've just written a song, for example, it's going to be a nightmare to learn, yeah. where the entire chorus is made up of nonsensical words. Not a single word is is actually a real word. What are, now, what are some of the words? Thing, um, flock, no, no, flong, um, bask. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember, because the reason I can't remember is because it's a new song and I haven't learned it yet. I've, yeah. written, I've, I've, rec- I've done a rough recording of it, so it's there. And I've written it all down, but because I haven't learnt the song yet, I, mm. I can't even tell you some of them. But all I know is that all the words in the chorus are nonsensical words, yeah. which will make it an extremely hard song to learn. But that's that's my that's my problem because I've written it. So, <laughs> but well, it's, a, it's a it's a very good question you ask though. Why or how? Why what makes people silly? Mm. What I, what I will say is I don't think there's enough silliness in the world. Mm. I wish I wish my, I wish more politicians could be sillier. It saddened me that uh, politicians are, are so uh, are so boring in many ways. I mean, and I'm talking in, in a way most probably both all political parties, but like they like all the guys wear suits and ties all the time. How dull! Mm. How dull! Well, what, I think it goes what back what to, to what you that? were what you were saying before about your general demeanour and perhaps how you're influenced in your upbringing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, anyone who wants to eat spaghetti bolognese every day. Wear newspaper hats and belly flop into a pizza <laughs> must be silly. That's right. I'll tell you one last thing before we finish. That I've got a song called "I Just Love Peanut Butter," which is not one of my better known ones. But I sang it, sang it last night with the band. It's a real band song, mm. and it's the most autobiographical song I've ever written. In the sense that every single line in the song is true. It's so you talked about you know like where the songs come from and uh, and am I am I always in the songs? In this song is the entire story of my experience with peanut butter over the years yeah because basically between the ages of seven and about 18 i ate peanut butter four times a day seven days a week wow which i wouldn't recommend <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing to do <laughs> but i loved it so much i still love it yeah i loved yeah. it so much that I, that's how often i ate it so the whole song is about that wow eating peanut butter every single day yeah so if you ever hear that song every line's true mm. nothing's made up right <laughs> i think uh, how many fingers on your hand is also probably true it's funny, I, that's, I got asked to sing that song last night, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that very song. Yeah, I, I didn't actually in the end, but I, but I got asked after the concert. Yeah, right. Which is a bit late. It's probably a little bit late. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Peter. Pleasure. My, good talking to you. Excellent. When Mr. Clickety came, for lazy silly game, all the kids in the street, they like to do the same. Wash your face in orange juice. Wash your face in orange juice. When Mr. Clickety came, for lazy silly game, all the kids in the street, they like to do the same. Wash your face in orange juice, wash your face in orange juice, clean your teeth with bubble gum, clean your teeth with bubble gum, 